0: Too many giant container ships chasing after too little cargo. The reckoning looms. Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, managing editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is a Supply Chain Brain podcast. There's nothing new about overcapacity in the ocean-going container trades. For decades, carriers have flooded the seas with new and bigger ships, far in excess of what the market requires. In essence, they've been playing a dangerous game of chicken, betting that the other guy will go over the cliff first, and they'll be the ones left standing. It's a game of grabbing market share at the expense of profitability. But the consequences of that strategy are sure to be felt. My guest today is Foster Finley, Managing Director of Alex Partners, which has released a new study that lays out the dilemma that ocean carriers are facing today. It sees continued overcapacity in the trades, which will eventually force a consolidation of the players. The situation, says Finley, is pretty bleak indeed. But how did carriers get themselves into the situation in the first place? Why can't they exercise discipline in their rate-making? Will their insistence on building bigger and bigger ships turn out to have been a colossal mistake? We'll find out in my conversation with Foster Finley. Foster Finley, welcome to the program. Thank you, Bob. What is the financial state of the container shipping industry today? Pretty
1: bleak. Pretty bleak indeed. There have been a continued falling in the pricing, continuing addition of capacity in an overcapacity market, and it's really been a bad thing for the container shippers. It's been a really pretty good thing for the most part for the, for the shippers themselves.
0: How did we get to this state of affairs?
1: Well, over a very, very long period of time of cutthroat competition between the operators, I should probably make sure that we're specifically thinking about container operators, because there are sub-segments of the maritime market which are not nearly as impacted. We could talk about bulk or row-row or uh, freshwater operators really in the container space. And especially if we think about the east-west trades, there have been many, many carriers subjecting themselves to um, gross overcapacity relative to the actual demand on behalf of the shippers that has led to a more than a decade-long period of difficult pricing and in some cases barely subsistence and subsistence pricing that the carriers have had to deal with. And that's one of a number of reasons we think it's due for really a, a consolidation so that there's a more rational set of competitors that can manage the capacity.
0: The culprit, or at least one of the major culprits, has to be these mega ships now capable of carrying upwards of 18,000 20, 20 foot equivalent units, and now there are uh, designs on the board for upwards of 22,000. So, is that in fact, in your opinion, a prime reason for the current situation?
1: Absolutely, but they also carry some additional problems with them themselves. The size of those ships is the equivalent of three ships showing up to be unloaded at the same time, which is actually now leading to congestion and and difficulties in ports themselves. But that that certainly is a major consideration, and obviously as a a carrier, the greater the number of TEUs or FEUs you can get on an individual uh, ship or in sailing, the generally the better you enjoy from an operating standpoint. And yes, that's, that's clearly exacerbated the, the chronic overcapacity situation.
0: Let me try to put on a carrier hat here, at least in terms of telling you what carriers have been saying all these years about this. And I've been around long enough now to see this as being a problem that's been going on for a long time. Starting with the idea that carriers say, we don't build ships for demand today. We build for anticipated demand in the future because it takes so long to build a ship. And a ship's going to be around so long. We're actually building for the future. That's number one. Number two is this, the big mega ships aren't supposed to lead to a net giant increase in tonnage because that will be accompanied by the scrapping, the retirement, or the transfer of removal of smaller ships from the trade. So there's two things they say. And then, of course, as you know, the reason for building the ships in the first place is lower operating unit economies. So how do you answer? I mean, if those things are all true, then we shouldn't be in this situation were they wrong from the start? So
1: it gets back really to our fundamental premise that we're in a chronic overcapacity situation. A carrier or a shipyard, for that matter, can produce ships based on any outlook, any forecast, any expectation. The fact is that, one, the global capacity, particularly for container east-west trade, is, is chronically greater than the actual demand that exists today today. And by the way, if I bring on new capacity, which is exactly what's taking place, I may or may not dry dock a ship. I may scrap the ship. I may or may not sell it. It really may not leave the market. And by the way, there are ports that can't accommodate the big ships, which means if I've got greater economies because I've brought on a newer, greater, more efficient ship, I may, and right now, steel prices are pretty Depressed, which doesn't make it as attractive to to scrap or salvage a ship. I may sell that to somebody else, and so fa- essentially that capacity hasn't left the market. The fact remains: if you took a snapshot in time right now, there is less demand for the available capacity of east-west container trade than is required by the market, and so bringing on something else and saying. I'm predicating the addition of that excess capacity on economics of operations is, is really a secondary or tertiary consideration above the main issue, which is <laughs> there already exists capacity to do that, perhaps at a very marginally lower operating costs because of either the, the ship or the crewing or the age or what have you. But that that's really <laughs> takes us back to Adam Smith and the whole issue of supply and demand.
0: Do you think that to some extent the carriers were lured in by low interest rates that made it relatively easy to finance these big ships?
1: Certainly that's been a consideration. And that probably in our view, one of the factors that could hasten the pace of what we expect to be a consolidation in the industry could be triggered or or sped up by an increase in interest rates. But what we've seen in the last several years is interest rates have been so low that the required debt costs to bring more capacity in the market is simply very, very attractive and very easy to undertake because the load is not as if the interest rates were several points higher, in which case that would be a more substantial deterrent to add that capacity.
0: Of course, none of this would be happening without the cooperation of the lenders. I I sometimes wonder, what were the banks thinking? Uh, that they would finance this sort of stuff. And is that attitude among banks changing now as they see just how many ships there are out there, even as the carriers insist on continuing to build them?
1: I don't follow the finance industry the way that I follow the maritime industry, but frankly, you might be able to make a case that the banking industry could stand some consolidation as well. But frankly, uh, you know, as long as the money's out there and somebody's in a position to get a margin on deploying that, good prudence would suggest looking long and hard at the ability of a, of a borrower to service that debt and to understand the risks that are being borne by, by lending that money. But frankly, I think look at many of the carriers. They're in levels of financial distress that literally haven't been seen during the annals of modern shipping in terms of you can look at the, the Altman Z score for them. You can look at your know, Alex Partners proprietary early warning model levels for them. It, it's a it's a pretty bleak picture, but of course you've also got carriers, and I could just use as one as an example somebody like Maersker or A.P. Muller. In which case, it's really when you look at where the sources of the, the funds are coming from, it they're already the middle 30s in terms of the percent of the composition of the Danish um, stock market. So not, not all of these are, when you look at the ownership structure and you look at the backing there, there are circumstances and opportunities for this to go outside of what we would call the very traditional confines of business person and lender behind some of these enterprises. Yeah, you,
0: know, you mentioned the Altman Z-Score has them showing in a state of distress, which of course is a precursor to bankruptcy, right?
1: That's exactly right
0: and even in those odd quarters occasionally when the, one of these carriers does go into the black they're probably still not making their back their cost of capital right
1: well it varies across the carrier i mean we, we just this last quarter uh, matson reported record earnings so the opportunity exists for unique circumstances to benefit somebody but frankly when you look at the state of maritime industry it's hard to make a case that as many competitors in an over capacity industry will be able to not only earn their cost of capital but be able to just continue to operate the way they have
0: been what is this apparent follow-the-leader mentality that has all these carriers scrambling to build ever-bigger ships, even as they see the overcapacity situation? They just seem to swallow the idea that these mega ships are the answer to their future. Or is it just a case of, well, that guy's doing it, so i got to do it too? I mean, what is this mentality that seems to have the industry in its grip? I
1: might be inclined to call it less... A mentality than a purposeful strategy. Frankly, when when we look at the global operators, the large players who have substantial or bigger war chests are quite clearly and knowingly adding that extra capacity to the market and planning on the fact that smaller or marginal or less well off carriers, less well off, meaning there's a lesser or less robust war chest of funds upon which to draw will be driven out of the market, thus precipitating a consolidation in the industry. So we we've seen in years past examples of trying to raise rates, of examples of trying to idle capacity, we've seen any number of things. They have not generally worked because the variety of operators and the fact that if if the shippers themselves get aggressive on pricing, somebody sooner or later breaks ranks and the whole house of cards falls down. And all of a sudden the quote unquote market for a given container rate for take your pick of East West major leg collapses and we're back to the same issue. So it's a risk. It's a calculated risk. What we're seeing is purposeful steps moving towards knowingly bringing on additional capacity with the expectation that marginal players won't be able to stay in the game they're going to have to fold their cards that could mean they sell their assets they could that could mean they go into bankruptcy that means they could downsize restructure idle ships any number of things leading ultimately to fewer bigger operators in the container shipping space And there's really no other uh, no other way to, to justify the actions being undertaken by the major players right now.
0: Feels like an enormous game of chicken. Who's going to go off the cliff first, right?
1: That's exactly the case. And that takes us back to the prior discussion we had around interest rates, because frankly, this could play out over a very, very long period of time, multiple years. But if interest rates were to rise precipitously, I think we'd see a a quickening of the game and a, a a more rapid playing out of who can stay in and and who will wind up at the end of the day in a more robust and defensible ongoing position
0: you mentioned idling ships there have been moves by carriers to lay up some of these ships, even the brand new yep. ones uh, have yep. been laid up for periods of time, which has significantly reduced the amount of capacity available to the marketplace within that period of time and yet. That hasn't worked, you're saying?
1: Well, it hasn't worked because when, when it's artificially come to pass that capacity gets taken out of the market at the expense of the shippers, there's a, there's a really bad knee-jerk reaction. What we've said when posed the question, for carriers, it gets a lot worse before it gets better. For shippers, it stays pretty nice for a long time before it gets worse. So, but, by knowingly, consciously stranding or you know withdrawing capacity from the market has re- it led to some pretty acrimonious discussions and situations with the shippers. So that's why I think we're we're seeing the seeing it being played the way it is right now.
0: Okay, overcapacity, yes, but in some of the major trades, even in the Trans-Pacific, I've been seeing figures lately upwards of like sometimes ninety percent. Ninety percent plus utilization rates, which isn't that bad. So I'm wondering if the ultimate conclusion here is that the economic benefits of operating big ships, the so-called unit scale economies, were overstated in the first place, even in a good market.
1: I wouldn't challenge that, but I would also say if you look at the statistics, that you know a figure of ninety percent utilization, something like that, is quite likely going to coincide with the peak of the season for the holiday season. What you 've got are the other eleven months of the year where you're not going to be operating at ninety percent you're going to operate at a substantially lower level so if we took if we took out that peak to average and just looked at the average, we've still got a much more chronic situation.
0: There is also this question of just the complete utter lack of rate-making discipline within the carriers who go from complaining about how rates are too low, who virtually beg the community to accept these rate increases and then turn right around and undercut them themselves in, in a very – what seems like a hasty manner, obviously fearing that the other – as you said, some other guy's going to come in and offer the, – undercut them, but <sighs> – I mean, is that not a problem that, that these carriers just cannot for five minutes maintain rate discipline on their rate actions? We can go
1: back to even the approaches like the TSA to try to, as they said, have stabilization acts in the pricing. This goes right to the heart of the point that there are too many unique operators, which leads to a highly fragmented market, which means you rack and stack them and say you've all got ships, you've all got capacity, you're all able to service these lanes that are necessary for me, businesses globally, not just U.S. businesses, businesses across all industries and all geographies have become much more sophisticated and much more transparent and much more sophisticated with regards to negotiating. So take big, sophisticated, seemingly disciplined operators, stand them up, leave the other players in, let them go through their annual round, which tends to be around the early part of uh, May each year, and all it takes is one person who breaks ranks, and the whole thing falls apart. So Mm -hmm. it really doesn't matter how well or tight an individual carrier withstands that or wants to be behind it, he or she is going to be left out with unsustainably high rates and all that capacity is going to get gobbled up by other people who are willing to take a, a little bit of a shortcut to just make sure that their, their ships are in operations and that their employees are, are still gainfully employed. That's really the manifestation of what it means to be in overcapacity. I mean, we, we've seen it in many, many other industries. Historically, something similar has played out historically in airline industry, particularly the U.S. legacy airline industry. I think we've seen something like that play out in the automotive industry. Uh, I think we've certainly even seen it in the global oil and gas industry, which, of course, is dealing with its own issues right now with the plummeting cost of energy. But the time is getting ripe for global shipping or container trades to, to likewise consolidate.
0: So this is your prescription. To the extent that they have any hope at all, it's only going to come through consolidation of the existing carriers, right?
1: Well, I think that's the only mechanism that's going to drive it, where you've got fewer people that have got a recognized common interest and have the guidelines so that we wind up being able to pose the exact same question, Bob, that you posed a minute ago and say, surely these people are smart enough to kind of not do self-inflicted damage by yielding to that. Well, that, you know, if you've got 20 options or take your pick of players, that's just a perpetual risk. If, If you, if you get it down to substantially lower number on those same lanes, you're likely to have a much, much more rational, set of numbers that come back which is why i say it gets worse before it gets better for the carriers it stays pretty pretty darn nice for the shippers before it could get pretty bleak
0: so you consolidate the operators but you still got the ships out there so what do you do following the actual corporate consolidation do you actually start scrapping some of these ships do you lay them out or lay them up or you still got the actual capacity on the marketplace even though it's being offered by fewer players so what then do you do
1: well, I think that's certainly a very relevant question. The interesting thing in this global trade is they can de- be deployed to other lanes. As you're well aware, you made comments earlier regarding the size of some of the mega ships that are coming on. Not all ports will be able to take those ships for a variety of reasons and will require that some of the smaller or older capacity ships stay in operation. What I think we'll see is going to be part of the unknown, which is what happens with interest rates, what happens with steel costs, what happens with energy costs, what happens with the actual demand itself. All I think will have an impact on what a given carrier's decision is, whether to scrap a ship, sell a ship, idle it, redeploy it. All of those factors I think will come into play as a consequence of what some of those macroeconomic factors uh, dictate
0: certainly seems unavoidable, the future that you're painting for container carriers.
1: Absolutely, but, I mean, listen, they're playing a a risky game that's going to drive a lot of debt onto their balance sheets. And I think what we can say is there is now and will continue to be a need for surface transport on the east-west lanes now and in the future, period, full stop. So, you know, we find ourselves with fewer players who are controlling and containing the capacity, but they could still be in some financial duress simply because of the debt load they put on the businesses to be able to prevail in a game of uh, driving out the marginal players.
0: And the initial upfront cost of integration of uh, of staff, of systems, of ships, of corporate leadership, all all that. All true. All true. Yeah. Okay, well, we will definitely stand by to see if your uh, predictions play out. It certainly does seem inevitable, but... uh, (laughs) Foster Finley, I want to thank you so much for being with us and kind of outlining your, your, your look at the uh, future of the container shipping industry. Uh, thanks very much for being with us.
1: Bob, my pleasure. Thank you.
0: That was my conversation with Foster Finley of Alex Partners, talking about the inevitable consolidation of ocean carriers. .com See you next time